organizers work with the people directly impacted to find out what the issues are and then work with the people who are impacted by those issues to build strategy, ultimately to build power in order to transform those issues. Transforming those issues can be resources, transforming those issues can be policy, and often they can be both. But there's a very distinct difference. And again, purpose of this show is to lift up the artistic science of community organizing. So why this podcast and why right now? I'm from Chicago, I'm from the South side of Chicago. I'm a proud son of the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization. Chicago is America's third largest city, and many people say arguably it's the most segregated city. But what we see happening in Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, Beemore, Cleveland, Oakland, New Orleans, D.C., Pittsburgh, Philly, all over the United States, we see gentrification or the loss of affordable housing and school privatization used as weapons to move Black people out of urban spaces. In other words, in many of our communities where our elders and our ancestors laid the groundwork for our people to be able to live and had impressive development, these communities have been starved for decades. And now our folks are being pushed out of these cities. In Chicago in the year 2000, we were 53% of the population. Chicago was in essence a Black city. Today, 18 years later, with 32%. So when you say why now? Now is important because there was a time in black communities where community organizing was a part of our daily existence. As a matter of fact, any right that we have in this country is a direct result of people speaking power to power. But I think, you know, after the civil rights and particularly the black power movement, the response to community organizing was violent. So in many of our cities, you know, we were terrorized out of building organizations that often pushed for us to control the institutions in our neighborhoods. And in many of our communities, the Black organizations do social service. We're funded by the city, by the state. And so what that means is we're not going to bite the hand that feeds us. And often those groups tend to be used as the face of municipal agendas or corporate agendas that are moved through municipalities. So we say that it is time for us to build organizations in our communities where people directly impacted can organize to address issues they care about. So we believe that if we want to remain in these cities, if we want to keep a future for ourselves, that nobody cares how eloquent we are. Nobody cares how cute we are. Nobody cares how much money we have. What they care about, when I say they, I mean systems. What they care about is our capacity to move them out of office, our capacity to move people power, to challenge money power. And so we have to master the artistic science of community organizing. And I, as a brother from the South Side of Chicago who's been an organizer most of my adult life, I am in that process. I would never say that I've mastered it, but I'm sure trying. So, so we want to do this podcast to bring voice to this particular part of the movement and, and hopefully give folks information that they can use in their communities. And then also just, just to make it plain, let you all know who the Journey for Justice Alliance is. I serve the Journey for Justice Alliance as its national director. Basically, we are a national network of grassroots community-based organizations in 39 cities. I can't believe I'm saying that. In 39 cities across the United States, 
committed to community-driven school improvement, using community organizing as the tool to win equity in public education. And so, as I said earlier, we live in the spirit of our beautiful ancestor, Miss Ella Baker, who folks may know, Ella Baker um, organized co-ops in the 1930s. You know, she was an organizer with the NAACP. She uh, was one of the first executive directors of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She helped young people organize SNCC and became a mentor to folks in the movement, like Diane Nash, like Bob Moses, Brother Stokely Carmichael, who eventually became Kwame Ture. A lot of these folks, these young people that were in SNCC, viewed Ella Baker as their teacher, and they called her Fundi, Kiswahili word that means teacher. And she believed in training people to build organizations and institutions to address the issues that they cared about. You know, this sister was ostracized in the civil rights movement, you know, because of sexism, where despite her contributions, we rarely hear her name today. You know, her and sisters like Septima Clark, these were the people that trained young people to do a lot of the direct action that we see, you know, in the black and white films that we see all the time, where there's young people sitting in and lunch counters, or young people getting arrested, or young people occupying public spaces. Their teacher, believe it or not, was not our great ancestor, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but it was organizers like Mama Fundi Ella Baker. So we want to lift her name up today, say thank you, Mama, for all the work you did, and I uh, hope that you look at us and you smile on the work that we do. And so what I'd like to do now is take a moment to introduce this sister to me is, you know, one of the beautiful lights in our work. This sister is charismatic. She's fierce. She's an amazing orator. She's a great listener. She's imaginative. And most of all, she wants to be free. And this sister works in that spirit. I, I love her because of her consistency. I love her because she challenges. I love her because she understands very clearly that leadership has nothing to do with gender, but everything to do with spirit. So the sister we're going to talk with today, trust me, she is walking the talk. And this is our good sister. She's got two young warriors that she's raising, and she is the director of the New York City Coalition for Education Justice. The sister came in the game as a parent leader and eventually was so consistent and soaked up the learning like a sponge, she became staff, uh, organizer, and now she's actually the director of one of the most powerful parent organizing coalitions in the country, the New York City Coalition for Education Justice. Sisters and brothers, could you please put your fist up for my good sister, Natasha Capers. What's up, Natasha? Hey! <laughs> <laughs> See, that's how we that. <laughs> that's, that's how we introduce our people on, on the ground. That's yeah. how we introduce our people, man. We're not gonna sit up here. We don't love us who love us, Natasha. Listen, that's black love. We all need some of that. Sister, thank you for being, you know, our first guest, man. Our first guest. So why don't you let people know a little bit about yourself and you know, just let people know kind of who you are, where you're from, what you do, and why you yeah. So hi, um, everyone. As Deepu said, I'm Natasha Capers. I'm from the Coalition for Educational Justice. And so at heart, I am a Black woman from Brownsville, Brooklyn. 
put it up, 11212. Um, I always wrap where I'm from because Brownsville and East New York, Brooklyn for years was the quote unquote murder capital of the country. And so most of the time when people have Brownsville in their mouth, they don't say it with love. And so I'm always front and center to say that I love my hood. I love where I come from. I love all the <laughs> people here because they helped to grow me into who I am today. So I am a Brownsville girl. I went to public schools all my life, from elementary school up into high school. And I'm the mom of two um, children who poison themselves to be able to kind of take over in this work in some way that I can't even imagine. And so I come to parent and education organizing, honestly, I came through it because the school that my children were going to at the time was placed on a closure list in New York City. It was at the height of the closures that Mayor Bloomberg, my previous mayor, was doing in the efforts of at school improvement. So, and my child school was one of them. And it was scary because I have always lived in Brownsville and I still live in the apartment that I grew up in. So um, that elementary school was actually my elementary school. I had gone there and graduated from there. So that school meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And, and so when folks from the Coalition for Educational Justice and Institute for School Reform came to our school to try to find parents who wanted to fight the closure, they found me. And I stayed in the work after we won that fight to keep that school open. I stayed in the work because I found a place that I belonged and that I loved in the work that just spoke so honestly to everything I am. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've got a lot of victories to share. And so <laughs> you are going to be a frequent guest. But, but let's, let's do something real quick. Because I know a lot of people who are woke as young people say today, conscious, as we said back in the day, in the movement, as folks said before that, who um, don't think that privatization is a bad thing because they accurately say that the public education system was never developed for Black people. It's not working. So why not charter schools? And if my baby can get an iPad and, 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 and if the school looks better than the school my kid goes to now, what you mean? Why shouldn't I like school choice? So, sister, let's take a minute to chop that up. You were actually raising your children in the era of Bloomberg. My condolences. (laughs) (laughs) So needed. If you could put what is school privatization in one sentence and why is it bad for black and brown communities, what would you say? I'll give you a couple of sentences. Go ahead. I would say because all that glitters is not gold. It is really that old adage, right? Mm. Just because it's glittery and new and it's really the compulsion of folks to want to go to this new thing says it will solve this age old problem. Mm. And so I have to try it or I've already tried this this thing and Mm. it didn't work for me. Mm. So I need to try this other thing. The problem Mm. is, is that while the privatization movement and charter schools were screaming all about their success and all of their victories, they actually had nothing under their belt. So mm. they just walked up and like, we're greater than this thing across the street. Mm-hmm. And people were like, oh, you do look prettier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, it might be true. Mm-hmm. But when it shakes out, when we look at the harsh discipline practices of charters, they disproportionately affect children of color, especially mm-hmm 
way on special needs. They get to cherry pick students so they mm. can take students who have threes and fours on state exams so they think we're going to do well and mm. bring them in. If they see isn't this successful, they can push students out in a way that public schools cannot. Public schools cannot expel a student. Charter mm. schools can. Mm. And so in New York City, some of them would do this dirty game of after October 31st, Mm-hmm. Wherever that student is, that money stays with that student because we do per pupil. Mm-hmm. So if Devin is in charter school A, October 31st, the money stays there. That's right. But That's right. if he is then pushed out for whatever reason by November 3rd mm-hmm. and then goes to your local neighborhood school, your local mm-hmm. public school, that money does not follow him. That's right. You know, we, we all love to follow the dollars, except the dollars ain't moving nowhere to follow. That's right. So that student that goes to public school, and now that public school is at a deficit. Mm-hmm. So, so now so they're so. working with X minus X mm-hmm. amount of dollars per student. What we have found over time is that this happens to hundreds of students mm-hmm. every year. That mm-hmm. is thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars that in public yes, schools are losing. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. One of the main points that Natasha made was that, you know, in charter schools, they can often push out children that public schools have to educate. And they develop, you know, selective enrollment schemes to make sure that they also select a certain group of students, the parents that are the most diligent, the parents that can go to four or five meetings, you know, interviews in order for them to get in, et cetera, et cetera. So when charters were first created, they were supposed to be centers of innovation that would provide uh, lessons that can be shared in public schools. But what we see nationally, really across the globe, the biggest innovation that charter schools have is how to pick the students and how to kick out the ones they don't want. And so that's important to note. I'm gonna offer a definition. We view school privatization as basically brokering the responsibility of educating primarily black and brown children the private operators. I mean, let me make it candid. Why is that some bullshit? That's some bullshit because I was named after one of Brownsville's own. I was named after an ancestor named G2 Wayusi, who was one of the lead organizers of the community control of schools movement in Brooklyn in the late 1960s. The point I'm making to when I say that is that the only way that we have been able to win resources and opportunity in this country is by having public institutions and governments accountable, structures to hold them accountable to say, you must do this, you must do that, you must do this, you must do that. Because what we're not addressing is the barrier to us having access to resources and opportunity is really a baseless hatred of us. This hatred infects every quality of life institution that we know. So to say you're going to create a system where parents have even less voice than the public school system, right. it's a, a scale. And on top of that, and we know now that only one out of five charters outperform traditional public schools. Repeat that. Despite the fact they can pick the kids they want, and kick out the ones they don't. Only one out of five charters outperform traditional public schools. So if you're a quarterback and you complete five out of 20 passes, 
how you going to keep your job? You know, mm-hmm. so why is it acceptable for only one out of five of these schools to do better than already starved public schools? Right. And, you know, Dr. Charles Payne with Rutgers University says the charter movement does not deserve the word reform. Their mediocre interventions only accepted because of the mm-hmm. way children serve. Right. So, in New York, so we have Success Academy with Eva Moskowitz, probably one of the most famous or infamous charters in the country, right? And a couple of years ago, they started their first high school. They started with a class of 100 and something freshman students. And then last last spring, last summer, they celebrated and touted the success of their high school because they had a 100% graduation rate and college mm-hmm. acceptance rate. Mm-hmm. But what folks seem to forget is that they only graduated less than two dozen out of a graduating class. Mm-hmm. So you start mm-hmm. with 100 plus mm-hmm. and you're down to less than 25 and then you get to tout success but where's the rest of these kids? That's right. Where's, that's right. Where's mm-hmm. the rest of these students? And what happened mm-hmm. to them? Mm-hmm. Where are they? That's Did right. they get out of high school? Did they get into college? And why are they not with you anymore? Mm-hmm. So when I say all that glitters is in gold, is that yes, Success Academy has a hundred percent graduation rate from its high school of less than two dozen students when it started with a graduating class of about 100. That sounds not like a success. But see, sister, that story, as you know, is not New York specific. In Chicago, many people may have heard what they call urban prep charters, ran by this brother named Tim King. They boasted 100% of their young people, you know, go to college. Uh, But what they don't say is that only 41% of the freshmen make it to their senior year. They got some of the highest push-out rates ever recorded. So uh, then there's another group of school called Noble Street and Mayor Rahm Emanuel said that they would, they had the secret sauce to public education because like 90% of their students met or exceeded state standards or come to find out that they were finding students. Their constituency is black and brown youth. And they were finding students in one, I think in 2012 to the tune of $400,000. So imagine if you're if you're getting fined for slouching in your chair, you're getting fined for, um, right. you know, your pants sagging, you're getting fined for not speaking to the dean when you walk through the door, and then you all of a but sudden- But not wearing the right socks. Yeah, not wearing the right but socks. not wearing the right belt. That's right. So now you've accrued, you sit up there and you got like $400 in fines, and they're telling you you can't graduate, or you can't go to the senior, right. senior year. So then what Noble Street was doing was actually counseling students out, saying, well, we can't move you forward, but if, if you want to transfer out, we'll forgive the debt. So all the young people that they felt that, that made them look less attractive, they pushed them out. Because at the end of the year, when they go to the school board, it's more schools. So the better they look, the more campuses they get. Sisters and brothers, it's not education, it's hustling. My granddaddy, Joseph Robinson, God rest his soul, was one of the biggest hustlers on the south side of Chicago. He, you know, fought in the Second World War, came home, bought some property, owned a couple of buildings, had a pool hall, grocery store, did fake driver's licenses and all this other stuff. But I love my granddaddy. He, I mean, he raised a lot of kids on the, what we call the low end on the south side of Chicago. 
But he taught me something a long time ago that I never forgot. He said that hustling ain't nothing but making people think they need something they don't. Right. So when we talk about the notion of school choice, y'all, I don't want the audience to think we just charter school hate. What people have to remember is that school choice was born after the passage of Brown v. Board. White parents did not want to send their children to school with our kids. So in many cities, they chose to pull their children out of the public schools. That was the first notion of school choice. So it was never born out of civil rights. It was a reaction to the civil rights movement. And so we cannot sit back and allow people to hustle us. What we know our fight is, is equity. That's the fight. The fight is for equity, to make America realize the mandate. And so could you explain to people what education was like in New York under Mayor Bloomberg? So Mayor Bloomberg, he's a business person. He comes from corporate world and he's a multimillionaire, right? And so he decided he wanted to be mayor because he figured he could do it better because he knew how to run businesses. And he comes in right after Giuliani. So right after 9-11 and a lot of those things are happening. And under Giuliani, he wanted to take over New York City public schools. He wanted to have mayoral control and somehow it didn't take root under Giuliani. But as soon as Bloomberg came in, it did somehow take root. And so Mayor Bloomberg had control over our schools. We no longer had school boards who made local decisions. They were placed with other structures that didn't have power in the same ways and only really have say over things like zoning and some budget everything, but very little. And so he believed that schools should be run like businesses. And so even down to the principals, right? Principals were told that they were the CEOs of their buildings. And so everything was very supposed to be very business-like. And when schools were struggling, quote unquote failing, did not meet proficiency around state exams, they believed that you needed to take over those schools, close them, and reopen them up or restructure them. So mm-hmm. meaning getting rid of most of the teaching force, removing the principal, um, because it can be hard to get some folks out of the classroom and starting over. Yes, ma'am. And this was really attractive to people because people were like, this school's been here 20 years. It's been failing all that time. We can't keep doing that. But what's also happening is because he was also really friends with folks in the privatization movement and charters mm-hmm. that all of those schools that closed did not then become new public schools, mm-hmm. that some of them became charter schools. So it was also a way to give away resources in terms of space. Public spaces. That's right. Hey, Natasha, right. Real, real quick. And we are joined by the illustrious, by the dynamic, by the beautiful, by the effervescent. Zakia Ansari, the State Director of the Alliance for Quality Education. Zakia, why don't you say hello to everybody real quick? Hi, everyone. Can you hear me okay? <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, and G2 gave me a raise. I'm not the State Director. I'm the Advocacy Director, but I love you anyway, G2. Thank you. That's right. You're the National Director of the Alliance for Quality Numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so look, she, my sister Zakia, When I met Z, she was working with the Brooklyn Education Collaborative. And we were Mm -hmm. both trying to find our way in our local work, you know, locked arms in this. And and we've been swinging together ever since. 
so sisters and brothers, you know, I know for me, I've been blessed in this work because I've worked with some amazing women that have really taught me the lesson again. And I, I say this a lot because as a man in Western culture, we are taught to be sexist. And so the struggle is to not be the Negro they want you to be, but to be the African man that you have the possibility of being. So I often lift this point up because it's true that leadership has nothing to do with gender. Being a warrior is not about how much testosterone you have. Being a warrior is about your spirit. And these two sisters are warriors for education justice. They have put their bodies on the line. They've marched 150 miles to the state capitol. They've occupied public spaces. They've been arrested, not just for their children, but to say that all children, particularly black and brown children, deserve the opportunity to learn. And too often, we're facing other people's opinions of us that are blockages to our children receiving the resources they deserve. That's why community organizing is so important. I asked Natasha to, to just chop it up about Bloomberg because you know we are leaving the era of Rahm Emanuel. His tenure is coming to an end, but it's really been a lot similar to what you all experienced. We caught it under Mayor Daly. Daly was racist as the day is long, but Daly was a neighborhood cat, right? He was a Irish working class. And so he went corporate towards the end of his tenure, but Rahm Emanuel came in corporate and um, just took privatization and put it on steroids, as many people know. So I think Bloomberg ended up closing like 160 schools. Is that accurate? Yep. I know that Bloomberg's era, in my humble opinion, felt a lot like Rahm Emanuel's era in Chicago. But at the end of Bloomberg's tenure, you all did something that was bold which ended up really determining who the next mayor of New York became. And could you all take a few minutes to just explain the Blue Bus campaign and how you all were able to, to actually, you know, move education justice to the forefront of the mayoral agenda? You want to kick us off, Sakia, and I jump in? Uh, sure. You have to understand our journey for this, our vision of victory, which is a film that we have and we can make sure that we get the link to everybody started more than a year before the mayoral election was happening. I think it's important to share that because sometimes we wait to the last minute to start strategizing and planning how we're going to reach our goal. And we realized that we needed to do this way in advance and bringing folks together and having a conversation about what we thought this should look like. And so what wound up happening was we brought together, wound up creating two campaigns. One was A plus NYC. And the other one was New Yorkers for Great Public Schools. And to backtrack a little bit, when we started having the conversation, we decided to base it on the charrette model. And our conversations included parents and community members and young people uh, to help figure out what this could look like, because we would all be impacted by whomever was the next mayor. And the charrette process is um, something they use in building planning and like with the World Trade Center in New York City before it became what it is now, the Freedom Tower, it was a charrette process and it was a quick turnaround and a way to engage a lot of people in regards to the World Trade Center with thousands of people in a conversation um, about what this should look like and to create a process that they can go back and look at it and we can redo it and take it down one more time and finally come up with a final plan that everybody engages in. And so we decided to lead off 
and creating our campaign based on that process. And and what it, it took a turn of having more than 75 community conversations within, I think it was like a three-month period mm-hmm. where we went to community groups. We engaged young people who were at every borough in New York. And it was just basic questions. It was, what do you want your school to look like, to feel like? And it didn't, it allowed people to answer the question without focusing on charter or anything else, right? When you have people envision, and GT, you talk about this all the time, about how we need to start, we need to envision more because we don't do, we don't create vision opportunities. And when you ask people, no matter where they are, young, old, educators, parents, they can create a vision. Exciting mm-hmm. for them because normally folks don't ask us what we want as black and brown people. They just give it to us and assume that's what we want or don't care if we need it, need it or want it. So it's an exciting opportunity to really engage everyone in this conversation. What do you want your school to look like and feel like and be really concrete? And from there, we had young people engaged. They're actually the ones who came up with the name PS 2013, right? Public school 2013 was the year of the election. And they came up with the idea. They created the artwork that we decided to use in the banners that we were going to carry on the buses. And we had the two campaigns. A plus NYC was for the organizations that wanted to engage around policy. And the goal was to create these short white papers that were three pages long, Matt, but that anybody could read and digest, parents, students, reporters, anyone who wanted to know. So it went from the impact of smaller class sizes to the impact of what it's like to educate black males, restorative justice, funding, like all those things were in a hub that would be, we created a website and everything. The goal for that was we wanted to engage organizations that do policy work, but they weren't necessarily willing to go toe to toe with the mayor or in the political field, right? Because they might've been a C3. So we needed to create a space for them to be engaged as they wanted to be, but to be able to do it in their own lane and be excited about it. And also be able to be champions when we needed somebody to be champions on policy, right? It was a really powerful space that, like I said, reporters and everybody else could go to, and they did go to and use it and download those papers. Then we had NYGPS. We called it kind of, for lack of a better terminology, like good cop, bad cop, right? NYGPS was the labor, we had NAACP, all our organizations were part of it for the most part. And we were the hard-hitting ones. We were the ones who created wedge issues. The goal was not to pick who was going to become mayor. It was to define and shift the narrative on what Bloomberg had put forth, which was school closures was the way, um, charters was the way. And we needed to shift that narrative. We need to make sure that New Yorkers knew that if you were running for mayor and you had the same type of narrative that you wanted to run, that that was the bad way. And the way that we needed people to run was the one that was connected to the A-plus policy. Right. We needed to make sure that we had smaller class sizes. We need to make sure that we needed to address the school to prison pipeline and the number of suspensions that black and brown kids were receiving. We wanted a moratorium on charter schools. Right. Any mayoral candidate, if they wanted to be mayor, pretty much for us, they had to denounce Bloomberg's policies and stand in support of the things that we were pushing for. You set the tone. And I think the million dollar question is in America's largest city, how in the heck did y'all do that? (laughs) <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I mean, mean it, it sounds good. But how can you pull that off? It was a lot of organizing work and really pulling together all of the like-minded people who realized that we were on the precipice of being able to do something great. 
And so folks who really wanted to have the opportunity, you know, we had had Bloomberg for 12 years. So there was a long like legacy and people wanted to figure out something new and different. And it was about being able to go and engage them. We didn't wait for them to like find us. Like literally the blue bus rode around five boroughs of New York City to engage people. And I guess I would add, you know, I didn't talk about the blue bus. The blue bus was a way to try to figure out how can we get to many places? How could we make it engaging? Something that the media would find exciting. It was different. That would draw folks to it. I don't think we ever decided on the blue bus, but we it came up that we were like, if we had a bus, like school bus, we could go around, right? PS 2013 on the school bus, that would be something that was a really great gimmick, but also draw attention. I think the blue paint wind up being the paint that might've been on sale, um, <laughs> but it was really great. It ran on, I think, corn oil or some kind of oil. It broke down mm-hmm. multiple times, but it was great. And we decked out the inside, we took out the seats and everything. And what happened was everything that we got when we finally did all our forums of 75 forums, we had to break down everything and figure out what were the key things that people wanted, right? And we put that in the bus because we wanted to get more input from those forums from the people that were actually going to get on the bus. And so what we did was we decked out the bus with like the messaging on it. Do you want art in school? Like it was a bunch of different things and we gave people coins. It wasn't actual coins, like paper coin squares. Students got one color, parents got a different color, educators got a different color. So when we were able to, t- when we were tallying responses, we would know who responded which way. So young people responded one way. It was in multiple languages. So the major languages that were spoken in New York, it must have been like six or seven languages. The pamphlet mm-hmm. that we had was translated in all those languages because we wanted everybody engaged in it. And we just took off around the city on different days. Some of us sitting on the floor of the bus, which was extremely crazy, but it was a powerful experience to have pull up in front of a school, children would get on, parents would get on and vote. And at the end of the day, what we wind up having is a great uh, report that we put out and a release of that report. And I think it's whole child, whole school, whole city. And it was whole city. Yeah. We released it at Brooklyn Borough Hall. It was a big to do. We invited some of those folks that came out, press came out. And over the time of us pushing this out and creating these wedge issues, some mayoral candidates rose to the occasion, or they didn't. We had a press conference, and we said we need to, we're going to be talking about the fact that testing should not define how brilliant our children are. Whoever showed up got a chance to speak. Yep. And at the end of the day, who rose to the top was de Blasio, right? Because he was on all our issues. He was the one who was willing to come out and take a stand on it and say he would not do certain things, and he would address disparities and suspensions on black and brown children. He was open to, like, Yes, test scores are not the main focus. That's not how you judge success. So again, our goal was not to pick a mayor. It was to make change the narrative and have whoever was running have to come to our side or be painted as the bad side, which was the, the Bloomberg era. And then I would just finalize and say that we had the first debate in New York, which I thought was really powerful. We had all the candidates come and the people that were asking the questions were either students or parents, and they were all women of color. And at that time, I don't know if you remember, Wiener jumped into the room. Mm-hmm. And so we had it, we had 300 people there, mostly our folks were in the space. Mm-hmm. And so everybody wanted to be there. So it was like paparazzi, it was just camera mm-hmm. flashing. And I was able to moderate it. And it was a really powerful day for us, I think. And 
We were on point. We had planned it all out, our questions. Everybody's going to get this amount of time. We, we role-played it, the whole thing, for, you know, days before. And it turned out to be a really great moment. I thought it was powerful to have women of color asking these really important questions to mm-hmm. mayoral candidates. And at the mm-hmm. end of the day, again, the Blasio is the one that stood out for folks. Now, I appreciate you, sisters, because you're humble. And we don't do this work to lift our names up. Uh, we do this work, you know, to make change. So I want to say this, that you all made some real critical points that I think are teachable moments. One of them, you all were talking about the fact that why was it important to do these community conversations and why did they take off? Because, you know, black and brown people are not used to asking us, what do we think? You know, what is your view on this? We're used to people, you know, telling us this is what you're going to get and you're going to like it. And in organizing sisters and brothers, that's important. You know, one of the mm-hmm. things, the very unsexy work of talking to people in their living rooms, talking to people in their communities, talking to people, whether it's town halls or just community conversations, and then being responsive. Because, you know, if we engage people at the beginning, then people will fight for what they help to build. But if you bake the cake, you put the frosting on the cake, and then you tell mm-hmm. people well, you can put the sprinkles on there you're not going to get deep commitment. And what you all did accomplish, and I I appreciate that, Z, because I think I was short-sighted and I said it. Your goal was not to determine who the mayor was, but you did two things. You shifted the education debate, and in my humble opinion, dealt a blow to the privatization, refocusing the attention on community schools and getting a commitment to build community schools. And the person that responded in America's largest city to you all's demands, became mayor. So Mm -hmm. the lesson in that system, brothers, is that we have power. We have power. You know, too often we've been taught so many ways to convince ourselves that we can't do it. You know, them niggas don't want to do nothing. No, they ain't going to do nothing. No, them people are going to do whatever they're going to do. They're not going to let us do nothing. And all that is is cold word for I don't believe. That's all it Mm -hmm. is. So every week, We're going to give you examples of sisters and brothers who are working to master the artistic science of community organizing and speak power to power and who are winning important victories to improve the lives of our people. Today, we had our sisters, Natasha Capers and Zakia Ansari. We want to thank you all. So we're going to close out today with one of my favorite groups, a group called Dead Prayers. They had a song that is kind of one of my anthems, and it's called I'm an African. So on this podcast, you're going to either hear recorded music, or sometimes we may even have a cypher. We bring some MCs here to uh, demonstrate, you know, to me, the uh, incredible gift created by Black and Brown people to the world called hip-hop. So you'll often hear jazz, you'll often hear hip-hop, you may hear cyphers, you might hear reggae, whatever. Any type of music that we think connects. So I'm going to thank you all for coming. I'm going to thank you all for listening. Sisters, I appreciate y'all, your wisdom. Thank you for being our inaugural guest. I want to leave you all with a quote by a great brother uh, by the name of Fundishi and Patanishi out of Detroit, Michigan. He taught me a lot of what I know about community organizing. And the brother taught me that we must be bold and daring. We must push possibilities to the limit. 
For our only limitation are those that we accept. Everybody, we come to y'all live and direct on the ground. I wasn't born in Ghana, but Africa is my mama. And I did not end up here from bad karma off of b-ball. Selling mad crack or rapping. Peter Tosh tried to tell us what happened. He was saying if you black, then you African. So they had to kill him and make him a villain. Cause he was teaching the children. I feel him. Dunn was trying to drop us a real gem. That's why